Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I'm holding this layer cake, and there's like this patch of icing on the front that's sort of like discolored or it looks different or it's like not perfect. And he's like, do you want me to like fix it so it like all is one color or whatever? And I was like, no, like I made that cake. That's kind of like the beauty of what it is. It is not perfect. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Nobody makes cake or cookies or tarts or anything else in the pastry case quite like Natasha Pikowitz the former pastry chef at Flor Bar and Altra Paradiso, who now helms the acclaimed pop-up never-ending taste in New York and organizes mega-bake sales, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for reproductive health justice, makes what are frankly the coolest pastries I've ever seen. Think crackly shoyu peanut cookies or cakes crowned with radicchio instead of flowers. I've long awaited Natasha to create a cookbook so I can attempt even some of that energy at home, So I'm happy to have her back on the podcast to talk about the release of her debut book, More Than Cake, and bringing her distinct pastry style to life. Natasha, thanks for coming back to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I was doing my my research as a good podcast host should, and I found out that you were episode 16 of the Taste Podcast, and we just passed 200, so it's wow. very exciting. Yes. I mean, I remember coming in. I think it was one of the first podcasts I ever recorded, and I was so just had this like awe at being in this hallowed hall because it's you record in the Penguin Random House building and all the books that are in the lobby that used to line the walls there and just having this feeling of being like, wow, this is so exciting. Yeah. I, right now the books are removed from the lobby because there's construction, but th- I've heard that they will be returning, which I was very concerned about. So I'm glad that that was something that resonated yeah. with you too. I took a picture of the like Da Vinci Code book that was in the shelf. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's the one that I love that that's the one you went for. Yeah. And now we have headphones on. We're back in the studio. It's like official and formal because you have a cookbook out that we get to talk about. Yes, I know. It's so crazy. I'm so happy to talk about this with you too and see what you think. Yeah, for people that aren't here, I'm wearing um, a shirt with a bunch of cake on it right now because the cookbook is called More Than Cake, but it is a lot about cake. So I figured (laughs) I should dress for the occasion. I love it. Well, so I do want to talk to you about cake, but first I have been wanting to talk to you for a while about um, music and music writing because I think a commonality that we have is that we both did music writing before kind of transitioning into the food space, right? Yeah. I mean, I was definitely trying. (laughs) Yeah. I I was trying also, I guess, succeeding maybe not quite as much. Um, But I do think about the way that that informs my writing. And I'm curious if, if you think that having a music writing background translates into the way that you write or maybe even just like the music that you listen to when you're writing. Mm. I mean, I think definitely, at least subconsciously, um, you know, because my background is not, I'm not formally trained. I didn't go to culinary school. You know, I'm, I had aspirations of becoming a music journalist in my 20s. And I think I'm very proud of this cookbook, which I completely wrote myself. And, you know, cookbooks are like, instructional texts, and they're manuals, and it's technical writing, you know, you're writing, you know, a set, a guide by a guidebook for people to kind of work off of and hopefully succeed from. But I think for me, a really fun challenge was figuring out how to sort of position my own writerly voice, like within all of that. And I, because I personally am very inspired by um, cookbook authors who, you know, have a great writerly voice and bring a lot of like wit and humor and looseness and, and kind of like narratives into, you know, technical writing, like whether it's like a great headnote or a chapter opener or like a standalone essay or even just the way the steps are written. And I think like, that's something that I thought a lot about when I was writing about music was how to describe sound and senses and like impressions and these sort of 
ephemeral subjective things that you're trying to put into words. And that was a challenge around music writing that I really like appreciated and loved. And also just, you know, music and food are both passions for me and are things that engage the senses. So I was definitely trying to figure out how to write about food in a way that felt like personal and real to me. Yeah, I really like that thought because I think that one of the biggest struggles I have with baking is just that I think so much of it does draw on this like learned knowledge when a meringue is done, when batter is risen or, you know, I'm not even saying the right things probably, (laughs) but having like indicators in the method that say, you know, cook this until it's golden brown or until it's fluffy and doubled in size is the kind of the closest way that you can get. So I think it's nice to think about like describing an 808 is maybe not that different to describing um, like bread that has risen. Right. And I, and I think also it's about like, The cookbook also as potentially being a text that's open for critical analysis. And I think that, you know, I think something about baking that maybe intimidates home bakers versus like the whole genre of just cooking is that, you know, it it is a series of steps that people think they have to kind of fastidiously follow. And sometimes I think when you're following steps, you sort of shut off the part of your brain that is like engaged to critically like analyze something. So, you know, what I am hoping to give to the reader is sort of tips on how to be present and how to like engage all your senses to observe what's going on. So if I say, you know, the whipped cream will come together in six minutes, but that might be different for you. But if you know what to look for, what the texture is like, how it feels on your palate, like the temperature of the thing, then that will sort of empower you to make that call on your own. Right. And then hopefully over time, you'll know what those things look like inherently, and that can apply into other recipes. Exactly. Yeah. So were you listening to music when you were writing the book? Yeah. I'm, I mean, do you listen to, are you able to listen to music when you write? Oh, I can't write without listening to music. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, writing, first of all, is extremely hard for me. And I think a lot of writers will say this, like, just because you identify as a writer, it doesn't mean it's easy or comes naturally to you. Like for me, it's very difficult and it's something that I have to create a lot of discipline and structure around. Otherwise, I just am like on the internet or I'm just like making a playlist instead of like writing. So I think for me, you know, vocals can be kind of distracting if I'm trying to write. If I'm like editing a recipe or maybe just doing like more technical stuff, like I'm working on steps or converting, you know, metric measurements or something like that, I can listen to anything I want. But when I'm writing something difficult, um, I listen to, I guess I was listening to more like instrumental music, like a lot of like ambient music, drone, like I'm really into like, um, like Terry Riley, Laurie Spiegel, you know, Tangerine Dream, Lamont Young, Steve Reich, that kind of stuff. Love it. So, you know, kind of long format pieces that I love, but they don't ask me to, like, I can kind of dip in and out of enjoying them, but they sort of set the tone for me to try to write. Yeah, I have a whole playlist that I listen to. I think if I'm writing something that's like a newsletter or maybe more casual, I can kind of do whatever. But if I'm trying to be really precious with something, I have like a... Mm Fortet, Nicholas Jar, like very minimal vocal, very like extended electronic yeah. playlist. Yeah. I, but converting metric, that would not be something I could listen to music for. Yeah. That would be like no headphones, calculator out. Horrible. Because like, I'm not a pastry horrible. chef. Horrible. I mean, it's hard for me too. I'm like, oh, one cup of coconut flakes. Like, what is that even? That's just different for everyone. So I definitely had to make kind of a series of arbitrary decisions based off of like what volume measurements look like for me that I used throughout the book. And hopefully, you know, that's, but I have a whole argument in the book where I'm like, please buy a scale. Like it is for your own good. It will make you faster, more efficient, like less dishes. Yeah. So, you know. So I want to talk to you about the title and the cover of the book and how they interact because the book is called More Than Cake and then there's a slice of cake on the cover, which I think is so funny and like kind of ballsy. So like how did that happen and what does More Than Cake mean as a cookbook title? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Like I – it was actually the um, name of the book that I proposed – that I put forth in my book proposal and it really just kind of like stuck with me and I think it – sort of for me encapsulates this idea that like for me baking isn't necessarily about 
like the thing that we eat and what it is. It's sort of like the context and the surroundings that it exists in and the feelings and the sort of like symbolic kind of emotions that sort of swirl around what enjoying something like cake might look like. So I'm like, yeah, it's it's cake, but it's like more than cake, you know, right? It's like about bringing people together. It's about like, you know, being alive in your community. It's it's sort of all of the strategies that circulate around what it means to have cake. And for me, it's not something that I do and eat alone necessarily. Like there, it's something that I do as a way of connecting with other people. So I wanted the cake, the title to sort of nod to that. But I mean, like, of, of course, you know, when we were talking about what the image of the book was cover was going to be, that was obviously like a decision that involved like absolutely everybody that was <laughs> involved in the process of making the book, like the whole team at Artisan. That was so great. Um, and, you know, it still is like the the book is about cake, but, you know, the, there's the other way... chapters. There's there's like savory also and like yeah. a breakfast section, but it is 50 percent cake, maybe 40 <laughs> percent. I mean, I have two dedicated chapters to cake. One is on my layer cake philosophy and then one is sort of on the single layer cakes that you can, you know, that don't need like soaks or, you know, big, you know buttercreams or whatever and kind of can stand alone on that way. So they're kind of distinct approaches, but I wanted to be able to provide like both kind of ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But like the whole title for More Than Cake actually was like not even something that a phrase that I came up with. And it was actually came through FEF, the Food Education Fund, this like nonprofit that I work with um, over in Hell's Kitchen. They work out of the um, Food and Finance High School on um, West 50th Street. And I like I always will go over there for like career days that they have and I'll like talk to the kids and they're so amazing. Um, and I went in this was before COVID. So I think this was like fall 2019. So it was right when I was starting to think about the book. And I spoke in front of this class of like ninth graders and they were like super, super cute. You know, it was great. And I was just talking about pastry, being a pastry chef, working in restaurants, the bake sales that I do, that kind of thing. And then like two weeks went by and I got like 30 emails in my inbox like all at the same time like obviously their teacher was like time to thank the chef you class know? assignment yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were so cute and it was just a joy to go through all of them but one of them this this student sent me this email and he was like dear chef natasha and i was like oh my god already i was like I love you. Um, but he's like, dear Chef Natasha, like, thank you so much for coming in um, to speak with our class. You've taught me so much about, uh, you know, being a pastry chef. It's it's so much more than cake. And I was like, whoa. And I got like chills when I read that because I felt like he sort of understood what I was talking about, where it was not just necessarily like making the dessert on the plate, but it was about like a chance to connect with like a guest in the dining room, with the, t the team that supports you in the pastry kitchen, with like the way your ingredients are coming in, like all of the people that sort of, you know, are part of like your experience, like as a pastry person, like in this world. And I, and I just really love that sentiment and that idea. Yeah, I really love that also. And I think um, it makes me think about the way that pastry chefs kind of play into the whole restaurant experience, because to me, like the biggest selling of the restaurant fantasy is deciding to get dessert as well, you know, and sometimes like I don't always have room for that. But if I'm really committing to a night out or if it's a celebration, like it's not a question that you're going to have dessert. And mm -hmm. that's maybe something that sets it apart from eating at home where like, you know, maybe I'm having some Haagen-Dazs, but I'm not really having dessert every night. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like not seen as, you know, your caloric nutrition for that day. It's always sort of seen as like something extra. And I think like what that extra thing is, is inherently like joyful, fun, like celebratory, like deli delicious, but not necessarily like quote unquote nutritious. Like it, no one expects it to be. So it, it kind of serves you in this other way. Like it feeds you this other thing. Yeah, exactly. And so you you were doing pastry in restaurants at Alter Paradiso and Flora Bar, and then you kind of transitioned out of that. I'm curious if like the way that you 
thought about developing dessert recipes changed when it came time to be doing a book for home cooks as opposed to this whole other realm of pastry making? Oh, my gosh. I mean, we could like literally just talk about this because, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, <laughs> because it was such a process. And, you know, for the book, I developed like every recipe in that book is was uniquely developed and written for this text for a home baker. Um, but that being said, like, obviously, I came into the book writing process with a repertoire of hundreds of things that I had worked on and developed, not just at Altro and Flora, but like other restaurants that I had worked at, other projects I had been a part of. Um, and so I certainly had like this sort of like corpus to choose from. And, you know, when you're developing recipes for a restaurant, like you're, you're looking at recipes where the yields are like, makes 100 cookies, makes 200 pieces, makes like, you know, 20 quarts of olive oil cake batter. Mm -hmm. And often scaling things up and down is not just as simple as dividing by 10 or dividing by 15. It's like, recipes don't always translate that way. So it it required like a certain level of detail to be like, well, I, I really want the, you know, vanilla bean pound cake from Flora Coffee to be represented in the cookbook in some way, but it's not as simple as just scaling down. So because you're thinking about like, you know, the equipment that the home cook has in their kitchen, like, I don't have a Vitamix or a Roboku. I don't have a, own a stand mixer. Like, Whoa, that's really? a whole other thing. It's like totally crazy. Um, Do you just have like a my KitchenAid, if you're listening, electric um, egg beater or? I bought it uh, last month. Like I, Eliza, I can't even get into it. I My apartment <laughs> is so small. I did do a lot of recipe testing in my apartment, but I did quite a bit at my parents' house in California. I did a lot at... Um, RIP, the old Munchies Kitchen in Williamsburg, mm. um, because a lot of the recipe t- testing happened the first year of the pandemic when things were closed. So I went to the Munchies Kitchen alone. I like tested with all this space. It was like a dream come true. I did a lot of testing at the Arcus Radis Kitchen. Um, same thing. Like they were closed to the public, not open. And the owner, Paige Lapari, like gave me a set of keys and she was like, come in, use it what you need. But it was really important for me to test recipes in a home kitchen to see like the true oven baking time of something that wasn't convection, that was done with like basic home equipment that, you know, what would a, what would a ground nut look like if you didn't have a Roboku? Like what, and I wanted to write recipes that would like not make you rely on expensive appliances that you might see in like a restaurant kitchen. So it definitely, and and by extension, I think also the kind of luxury high scale kind of quality ingredients that I was used to handling and having access to in restaurants. Obviously, like if you make an incredible panna cotta with like the world's best, you know, local fresh heavy cream and amazing vanilla bean and, you know, fancy finishing salt, like that thing will taste exceptional. But as much as I could, I tested all of the recipes with like, I would go into my sea town on Manhattan Ave or I'd go to Key Foods and buy like the out of season honeydew melon or I'd buy like conventional citrus or, you know, granulated sugar, like whatever. And I would try those recipes with those kind of standard ingredients too, because I wanted to know like, will this thing still be delicious in the end? And that kind of informed the recipe testing process as well. So, so many things went into it and, you know, it it was really fascinating to see like how I could streamline in certain cases, like make the steps for the recipe like more efficient or or easier to understand in some way or or written out in ingredients because often like, you know, I think you'll find like in a lot of fine dining restaurants, like there are recipe databases or books that cooks will use as reference points. Mm-hmm. But often, at least in my experience, this procedure, the steps are not written out. Like the cooks are kind of expected to know like the technique for pate choux, like how to make pastry cream, um, you know, like what certain things are kind of like up to that person to sort of replicate and know. So the process of writing out you know, what does nappe look like? And also, can I not even use that word? And that yeah, was what, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, th- th- and that was something where when I was going through my manuscript, the first pass with my editor, Judy Prey, and the copy editor, they were flagging all of that stuff. They were like, if you're 
going overly technical with certain terms that either need to like be defined or find a way to say them so that you know they're accessible for everybody and and you, people will know what you mean like even it's like that shit's creek thing of like i don't know what fold is it's like folding the cheese <laughs> so and i talked about that cuz yeah. she did uh that show with Dan Levy so i was like did you ask him about this all the time <laughs> but i think like that is such a salient example because you know there's jargon i think with like restaurant cooking or pastry technique or whatever and you know it's not enough to just be like cook the curd to nappe it's like wait what is nappe i'm going <laughs> to need to know. <laughs> uh, it's like the term for when a custard that is thickened by like egg or cornstarch or flour reach it like kind of seizes and thickens in a certain way where you can like drag your finger through a spoon or the back of a spatula and, mm-hmm. it, and it sort of doesn't immediately fill back in with liquid. It sort of stays thick and hangs onto the spoon in a certain way. So that's like something you look for if you're making an ice cream anglaise or cooking a jam to a certain temp. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying about like critical thinking and engaging your senses. It's like, let's just not even use the word nappe, but if you know what to look for when something is thickened, then you'll know it's done because your senses are kind of paying attention. Mm. I love that. And now I'm going to be dropping this word just all throughout my life. So I seem like I know what I'm doing because I've done that a lot, but I don't know that that was the word for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like you're a great cook and definitely know what you're doing. So I'm just not paying. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and to the point about engaging your senses, I think another thing that I really appreciate about your pastries when I've had them before and also when I've just been on Instagram and looking at them is like, I feel you have a really distinct style. Um hyper seasonal, kind of unexpectedly savory in some ways. And and I'm curious, like, if you intentionally thought about, like, this is what makes something a Natasha recipe or if that's just kind of inherent. I mean, it's so tricky. I, I think that, like, my style, like anybody probably, like you, like any person, is probably always evolving. But, you know, there are certain, like, flavors, techniques, like aesthetic styles that I've definitely honed in on or really love or appreciate. And, you know, it's like even to go back to this idea that I didn't go to culinary school, like at the time, I remember feeling like super insecure about that and being like, I don't have the training. Like I've never made fondant. Like I can't make a good rose out of sugar or whatever. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and it made me feel like inadequate and that I wasn't like a real pastry chef unless like I knew how to do all of these like technically fussy things. But now I'm like, well, I'm really fascinated in like what it means to have kind of this outsider perspective. And it's one that is like maybe rejects the canon or rejects like these institutions that are like your dessert or your thing must have like all these elements, like must have this like coulis or this foam or this garnish it's like all of that like throw all of that away and then now I can create my own point of view that doesn't rely on like what I think needs to be included and there was definitely like a certain amount of freedom or liberation that came with not working in the institution of fine dining restaurants anymore for sure because it's like all of a sudden you know the terror is well, I'm not associated with an institution anymore. Like people might stop caring what I'm doing. And I still feel that, you know, like anyway, but also there is like a liberation in that being like, wow, I don't have to run literally everything I do by a man who's in charge of me, who like pays me, who is hired me to do you know, his vision, execute his vision, which is what any employee in a restaurant ultimately is doing is, you know, you're serving your boss's vision. And so I think that, you know, once I became free of 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 that, like hierarchy and those institutions, like I start to play around with like ingredients that felt like personal to me or that I was intrigued by, like developing my palate and a style that maybe didn't have to be as austere as I was used to. Like I could do things that felt a little more like loose and or like chaotic and just like being able to give myself permission to have things not be so perfect and you know like flawless like whatever that is but certainly like an expectation that was asked of me when I was working in restaurants which is like very stressful you know to be able to deliver like that consistently all the time and now I'm just like 
okay, I'm a home baker. I'm working from home. I'm making recipes for people at home. Like I can sort of let, I want to give myself permission to let go of some of that stress and just be like, put, throw the buttercream on there. Like, don't worry about the edges being like perfectly straight and smooth. Like on the back cover of my book, there's this photo of me, which like, <laughs> it was hard for me to come around to that reality a of being so of you prominent on the book like, that you spent your making yeah honestly. but i'm holding this cake anyway and you know when artisan was doing all the final touches for the cover and stuff i think whoever their retoucher was was emailing me about certain things cuz they'll you know do final things for a photo and there's i'm holding this layer cake and there's like this patch of icing on the front that's sort of like discolored or it looks different or it's like not perfect and he's like do you want me to like fix it so it like all is one color or whatever and I was like no like that's like what the cake I made that cake I styled every single thing in every photo in the book I'm you know I baked it myself um and I was like that's kind of like the beauty of what it is like I it is not perfect it is not like perfect 90 degree angles like super smooth facade like I wanted it to reflect the reality of like I just made this in my kitchen and it's not perfect. And I think there's a certain kind of beauty in in that look too. So I think like my style will definitely keep evolving. And I'm very inspired, like you were saying, by, you know, seasonal ingredients and things that feel unexpected in the genre of pastry, which is obviously stuff that like we're seeing so much more now with cakes. It, it's, it just feels like much more like mainstream, I think, with cake decor. But, you know, as recent as like three or four years ago, like was not that common. And and I remember doing a layer cake feature for Bon Appetit in 2018. And I was on set and we were styling these layer cakes. And they brought in all this stuff from the farmer's market. They were like, is there anything that you need or want specifically? And I was like, whatever, like whatever's in season. Like it was the middle of summer. Everything was in season. And they came back with like, you know, um, you know flowers and, and like small berries and stuff like that. But I also was like, grab, you know, cute little things like tiny tomatoes on the vine, like, you know, savory herbs. Like we can play around with all of this stuff. And, you know, it was really fun to be able to be like, when you're thinking about decorating a cake, like it doesn't have to be, you know, flowers from the bodega that are drenched in pesticides. Like it can be something else that maybe you haven't considered, like a beautiful little tomato on a vine, like that you wouldn't think would go on a cake, but actually like, you know, the sensibility of it fits perfectly too, in a way. Yeah. I remember this story. I was working at Bon Appetit when the story was happening. And I remember seeing the you, the cherry tomatoes ended up on one of the cakes, right? Yeah. yeah. And now in the book, you have a really beautiful radicchio on one of the cakes. Yeah, yeah. Which I love. I, like, will do radicchio for any occasion because I think it's so beautiful. But I'd never thought to do it on a cake before. I thought that was so fun. Yeah. And I think, like, and especially as some of these ingredients become, like, trendier and they become more ubiquitous in grocery stores, like, like a Whole Foods or even just, like, you can find, you know, radicchio in my sea town and, you know, being able to go into, like, the produce aisle and, like, assess your surroundings and be like, yeah, this will act in the same way as if I tore, you know, a flower from, you know, the bodega apart and got the same effect of, like, movement and volume and sort of texture and, like, a variegated stripe or, like, little speckles on a leaf. Like, I think all of those things are super beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to this idea that cake culture has been evolving and kind of increasing over the past few years, which is obviously a topic that yeah, I think a lot about with cake scene. And I just want to know, like, why do you think this is happening? I mean, I, obviously, there have been like many think pieces published about this already, uh, like ones that you've written, like literally you have a zine about cake. Um, I was like... I was just thinking about how right now the two, like two mainstream like print magazines like Food and Wine and Bon Appetit have pictures of cake on them right now. Mm -hmm. And I think they're def it's definitely in the zeitgeist right now for sure, which is like great timing for my book. But um, Love it. I'm just so grateful that people are interested in these things. I mean, I think part of it also is like our 
attitude and and the way that we're thinking about baking from home since COVID, like more project baking, like things that are more ambitious, but also like our obsession with visuals and aesthetic and decor and like how cakes are just inherently this thing that begs to be photographed. And so what you're seeing on something like uh, Instagram or TikTok or something is bakers who maybe haven't baked before professionally, maybe have never worked in restaurants before. And so like the gatekeeping around like who gets to create these like ambitious, beautiful desserts sort of disappears once you see that a visual platform like Instagram will support like the work of creators who are making stuff from home. Um, So I think like it's awesome because from my point of view, a genre like layer cakes is so kind of pastry canon. And there's such a, I think that historically there's just been such an idea around like what cake should be or look like or feel. And then now you're seeing people who are kind of like breaking a lot of those rules. But then of course, like any trend that now there's so many people doing that, that you sort of see those trends like devouring each other and like those kind of like quirks being like replicated in certain ways. And like, you know, the kind of effect of, you know, micro trends happening with like independent, like cake designers and business owners on something like Instagram being translated into like a mainstream outlet, like Bon Appetit running a story on like how to make a dome cake, you mm-hmm. know? So I think, I, th- I think it's really fascinating, but, you know, I am just hoping to contribute to the discourse by being like, if you are going to do this, this is the way that I do it. And I tr- and it's built in a way where I feel like it truly is the kind of less the least stressy way of doing this thing that I think many people consider to be like um, sort of ambitious or overwhelming or like advanced. And I'm like. Let's just, like, eliminate the sort of dichotomy of easy and hard. Like, nothing is more easy or more hard than anything else, in my opinion, when it comes to pastry. Like, they're (laughs) all, like, equal tasks. It just depends, like, how many little tasks there are, like, how well you're kind of setting yourself up for success and, like, how those things kind of come together. But, like, you know, one thing isn't more easy or hard than another thing. It's, like, all subjective. It's just about, like— putting all those things together. Because if you look at what comprises a layer cake, it's like, well, you've probably made, you know, a chocolate cake in a bowl and whipped cream and you've made a jam. Like, it's just about assembly and kind of construction. And I think the engineering part of it is what throws people for a loop. So I'm just here to provide strategies around like, hey, I didn't go to culinary school. I made this up. This is just what works for me. And, you know, I don't know if it's like would be approved by like those methods, but this is what I'm hoping to like pass on to other people. Yeah, I think that's a really good approach. Although I would say I do think some things are harder than others as as someone who like, you know, I do this whole magazine about cake, but I'm not a baker. And the one time I made a dome cake, it was a Martha Stewart, like 1981 recipe. When we like, I did a cookbook club, we did Martha Stewart entertaining. I think it took years off of my life. Like I would (laughs) truly never, I'll try one of yours to see if it would be better for me, but I had help and I still was like in chaos mode when I had to invert the dome Mm -hmm. because the way you did it is you lined a bowl with sponge and then uh, chocolate mousse and then chill it overnight and then turn it out. When it came time to turn it out, I couldn't do it. I had to get someone else to do it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that like big moment of like the reveal. But then that that's why I'm like, like, let's put tons of strategies in here so we can like, you know, h- help kind of kind of address those anxieties. Like, I'm like, you know what, like cakes that are don't have butter in them that are you know, soaked and flavorful things that have moussey fillings, those cakes freeze really well. So it's like sometimes I'll freeze that whole cake. Then when you're turning it out, you don't have to worry about like layers sliding around or anything. Mm. It'll be like perfectly stable. And often like the the flavor and texture of the of these kinds of cakes is like never compromised by something like freezing. In fact, like usually improves texture. It gives the cake a chance to like meld together and it's easier for the baker to kind of like do that finishing, you know, swoop of icing or whatever. I love that idea. And I also do think that um, 
maybe this is a controversial opinion, but maybe it's not the worst thing for people to try a cake and not have it turn out that well. Because I think that like, you know, all the time people ask me where to buy birthday cakes in New York uh, as just a cake person. And then they're always shocked by how expensive they are. And my response is always like, have you ever tried to make a cake like this? It is it is worth every penny. It is the most stressful thing. It takes so much time. There's so much technique, you know. Thank you for acknowledging that. I think that's that's totally correct. And But also, like, this idea of mistakes or failure, like, this is, I think, also another kind of current that runs through the book where I'm like, I've messed up in every way you can mess up, like, from being distracted, from being inexperienced, from not paying attention, like, whatever it is, like, I've made it. But I think that all of these moments, not to get too like woo woo, but it's like these are all moments that we can like learn from and become more sensitive people like within baking. And all I'm asking is like for a person to be present when they're doing the thing that they're doing. And it's like if you're being present and you're like in the moment, then even if you mess up, that's like information that that lives in your brain and that you are like learning from the next time you do that thing and your cake will be better or not. But it's like, you know, you have that experience. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Um, Maybe this because I'm from L.A., but I like the woo-woo approach. And I think even during the pandemic at one point, because I had nothing else to do with my time, I was journaling after uh, cooking things and then talking about what I liked or didn't like and wanted to do differently. And when I told this to one of my friends who isn't a big cook, they were like, oh, I can't believe you're being so critical. And I was like, no, like I want to know what I want to do differently next time because I want to be making this forever. And eventually I want to be that grandma that has like the best whatever, you know, because I've done it and refined it so many times. Yeah. Oh, I love that you keep a notebook. And I have like a mini chapter at the beginning of the book that's sort of like essential tools. And one of the things that I recommend people have is like a notebook and a pen because I'm, I mean, of course, if you want to like annotate your own cookbooks and write right in them, like I would be honored if you, you know, if anybody messed up my book in that way, I think that would be so cool. Mm -hmm. But I am a like obsessive notebook journal keeper person. I love like I'll write out recipes. I'll write what went went wrong, what went right. Like exactly. And I'm like, it's so important. That's another version of being present. It's like this idea of reflecting on the work that you just did, um, kind of being able to summarize it for yourself. And then the next time you make it, you're not like, wait, like, did I put the oven at this temp? Or wait, what happened when I it, I took it over? You know, it's like you have that, like, you have it right there for you. Mm-hmm. And on this idea of being self-reflective, I have a very different kind of question for you, which is I love the fact that you do uh, drawings for your pop-ups, and they're often Simpsons drawings. And I want to know if there's like a secret to doing a good Simpsons drawing. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I don't know if mine are that good, but... For listeners, they're, they're, they're good. They look, I mean, it's <laughs> obviously the Simpsons. <laughs> well, I think uh, uh, Simpsons like cake is something that seems to really flourish in social media because it's so visual. But um, for me, it's just like, I think that what makes them... F- like bootleg Simpsons is like this whole like niche world. And I think what makes them great is when they're not perfect Mm -hmm. and they're not like exactly replicated. So often like when I'm writing out a menu for a pop-up, I'm doing, I'm writing it five minutes before we open. And it's like, I have no time. It feels really crazy. And I think just doing it kind of loose and freehand and having it look a little bit weird and wrong is like what makes them fun for me. Mm -hmm. So it's always like this fun challenge to like because I'm an obsessive Simpsons person and have been my entire life to go back through my head and be like, what's like a funny moment that will like address or reflect like whatever the theme of the pop-up is. I like that idea about the charm of it being not quite perfect. I mean, yours are much better than this, but it reminds me of when you go to Times Square and you see like the knockoff Elmo's, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Clearly someone is avoiding a copyright here, but I can also tell that it's Elmo. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I just, I just like want to have fun with it. And the aesthetic for all of my posters really began from when I was doing, um, I did like a long pop-up kind of residency is not the right word, but at Superiority Burger, like the summer of 2020, and I was very inspired by how like Brooks will write out his menus with just black Sharpie on white pieces of paper. So I was like wanted my menus to kind of fit into that, but also be my own thing. So he would give me a piece of white printer paper and a black Sharpie and I would like do my own menus. But then I would add the Simpsons character. And I remember like 
in the old location in the East Village where he would tape tape up the old specials on the wall. Mm-hmm. And he taped up one of my drawings. And I was just like, oh, my God, I've oh, made it. Mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gold star. Yeah. So the pop-ups are, I think, a big part of your presence in the pastry world in New York. And I think that the bake sales that you do as well are so big, benefiting Planned Parenthood and Bridget Alliance. And I think that, you know, the first one was in 2019. And since then, there's been so many... Um, reasons to have bake sales in New York and so many bake sales that have come out of that. And I'm curious, like, as kind of, you know, one of the grand dames maybe of the <laughs> of the baking is activism world in New York, like, do you think that people that are bakers are more likely to be involved in things like this? Or like, why is this something that's flourishing? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely something I think a lot about because, you know, every time I produce a bake sale, I'm like reaching out and asking stuff from my peers. And actually, the first bake sale I produced was in 2017. And um, I remember being like, I'm new to the New York like restaurant scene. I'm a nobody. What is this? Who's going to say yes? Like, why would anyone do this? And I was asking like the pastry chefs at like um, Gramercy Tavern, Le Cuckoo, like Le Bernardin, you know. Hitters. Yeah. And I was just like, what am I doing? Like, I'm so, I was just, yeah, I was very nervous to be like, hi, like, can I, you know, will you come do this thing with me? But, but like the more I kind of put myself out there in the sort of pastry chef community and world in New York City, I was like, wow, this is like a bunch of, you know, super hardworking, deeply creative, and also like very altruistic kind of people. And I think like the more I got to know who these bakers and chefs were, how they managed their teams, like the kinds of, you know, values that were important to them. And they're, and it's not necessarily like the same kind of kitchen culture that you might see on the savory side where line cooks are like staying up super late, like all the cliches about like going out. And, you know, it's, I think when you're like a production baker, you know, maybe you're waking up really early, like the lifestyle is a little bit different. You know, I'm, I'm generalizing, but like I was, you know, when I did that initial reach out um, in 2017, every single person said yes, you know, and I and I was so every time a yes came in, I was just like, oh, my God, it's happening. Like, we're going to have this thing and people are saying yes. And I think that, you know, also, it's like when you're working in restaurants or bakeries, you're kind of like in your own little tower, you're in your own little world, you're in like a room with no windows, you're in a basement, like it's hard, everyone works like 70 hours a week, it's hard for like, you know, your peers and everyone to kind of come together. And so I think on another level, there was this idea of like, let's all come together and, you know, spend the afternoon together and, you know, taste each other's work and see what we're up to and meet our, like, the other people on their teams. And so I think to have that level of, like, in-person socializing also made it really unique and, and very fun. It's not just, like, drop off your pastry and it's a shopping event. It was very much, like, a socializing event where guests could come in and meet the pastry chef behind like the thing that they love in the restaurant like and i love this tension between like asking you know pastry chefs at, from restaurants that i couldn't even afford to go eat at but to come and make like something that we could sell for $5 or $10 and i think that made it really accessible in a way where you know my friends who couldn't afford to eat at flora could like come to the bake sales and like participate so i really wanted to create that moment that you know, was sort of an alternative to the kind of more um, traditional modes of fundraising that you see in restaurants in New York where, you know, you're cooking for like a $10,000 seat at the table or whatever, which are amazing. And I'm a part of those things too. But like, I wanted to do something that felt a little more DIY and like in the same kind of punk spirit of the kind of community organizing I was doing before I ever started cooking. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense to me. And I think another thread that I think about and and not to, um, you know, overly generalize the people that are participating, you definitely know this more than me, but I do think that um, so many of the people that I've seen at your bake sales are women and the the causes that the bake sales are benefiting are reproductive choice causes that affect a lot of women. And I think that it is really cool to see organizing happening in this space in an area that maybe like isn't traditionally thought of with it, which as much respect uh, maybe as like savory baking or just as like, you know, mom's cookies, grandma's cookies, like that whole connection. It feels very like for us, by us in Definitely. a cool way. And I think like, yeah, it, like you were saying, like maybe the roots of the bake sale, it's like, how can we think about this format this genre and like in like a more subversive way and and have it not just be like 
Yeah, exactly. This kind of, uh, you know, there's nothing, obviously, like the domestic baking sphere is like incredible. And that, so I'm trying to like exalt that. And mm-hmm. I'm trying to like make that like a big deal, you know. But I think for sure, I think this, all of the major bake sales I've produced have been kind of in service of, um, you know, reproductive rights for everybody, whether it's Planned Parenthood of Greater New York or, you know, a smaller organization like the Bridget Alliance, which actually connects people to larger orgs like Planned Parenthood, but they're based in New York. They're incredible. I mean, we did a big bake sale last June. It was my first in 2022, and it was my first one um, since before COVID. So it was like a very, you know, moving like moment for me. But we had planned the bake sale and you know, it happened literally days after news of the Roe v. Wade ruling was going to be overturned leaked. And so all of a sudden, everything just felt really like, you know, that urgency around wanting to come together with your peers, you know, the way that an organization like the Bridget Alliance was, you know, seemingly overnight flooded with, you know, requests, people reaching out, like they were overwhelmed. And so being able to just kind of jump in at that moment and have that big sale, like it really felt like this is my skill set. This is what I know how to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy to be here and show up for them in the ways that I know how. Exactly. And that's something like food and baking, which is so much rooted in care, can be helping support care for other people as well. Exactly, yeah. So I'm curious, are you doing any pop-ups tied to the book that you can talk about? Oh my God, Eliza, I'm doing so much for the book. It's insane. My publicist is like, you're doing a lot, Natasha. But I'm like, yes, I have a hard time saying no. Um, But I'm basically going on tour for like two months, which is totally crazy. Um, I'm going to like 12 cities, like 10 in North America. But the really amazing thing that I'm excited about is obviously like, I you know, the cookbook is like providing strategies for throwing bake sales. There's like an essay about, you know, how to bake sale in the book. Um, the recipes are sort of engineered and designed for these kind of gatherings. And I hope that people use the book when they're thinking about bake sales. Um, so when I was working with Artisan to plan my like dream book tour, I was like, we have to make bake sales a part of this because... First of all, I felt like it was a way to sort of take the spotlight off of me a bit and bring in collaborators and peers and like other people. Um, But also I just wanted a reason to do it again, but in a new context, which is like I have a book. So that's totally crazy. So I'm basically bookending the tour with a big bake sale in New York and one in L.A., my first one that I'm producing um, outside of New York. And we're partnering up with independent booksellers in each city that are kind of going to help us sort of, you know, sell tickets and, you know, kind of like do help us Mm -hmm. keep the logistics running smoothly. So here in New York, we're um, partnering up with Kitchen Arts and Letters. So fun. One of my absolute institution, um, such a special place. Like I remember walking up there, you know, after being at Flora for the for the day because it's on the Upper East Side. And it's just like the craziest collection um, of of food titles, but also like rare periodicals, like Cake Zine is there, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't think we do sell there, oh, actually. Oh, they, should be there. They told us no, but maybe we'll try again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, we're going to get on that. We're going to make sure. Um, but, and then in LA, partnering up with Now Serving, um, and we're going to do a bake sale in Chinatown in LA, which I'm super excited about. Um, so yeah, it's like pretty amazing to see all this stuff come to life and also kind of in tandem with the book. Um, And, but, you know, it's, 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 they were like, Artisan was like, we've never promoted or done anything like this before with the book, but we love that you're into it. And like, what do you need? And so I think that was huge for me that they've just been like, so supportive, so enthusiastic, like love the ideas that I'm sort of like I've been very involved with how this tour is coming together and the kinds of things that I'm doing, but the bake sales is very much like at the core of of all of the programming. Well, I will definitely be at the one in New York. Do you know when it's going to be? It's going to be April 16th at the White Hotel, and um, so that so my pub date is April 11th, which is a Tuesday, and then um, it's that weekend is the Cherry Bomb Jubilee, mm-hmm. so it's it's on that Saturday, which is the 15th. So 
that was very, I thought that was like kind of perfect serendipitous timing where I was like, great, people will be in town and going to that stuff. I'll be there. I'll be there signing books and doing stuff around the book for Jubilee. And then the next day is the bake sale. So I, I feel like it's just this going to be this jam-packed fun weekend of like all this fun stuff going on. So hopefully people will go to both. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I know that we're talking about this book tour, but we do ask every guest on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or a food culture book without the burden of time or money, so <laughs> unlimited time, limited money, what would that book be? So I don't know if you have another idea. I mean, but... is it like time stands still and time is in- infinite in that way? Or am I like getting older as this book project takes me like forever or this is this is your podcast moment <laughs> so if you want to be like immortal eternal writing a book forever I think that's a really great hack to this answer <laughs> <laughs> oh I love hacks to like open-ended questions or but... like you know an excuse to travel somewhere yeah or like buy every piece of radicchio at the Union Square Green Market I, right right so the uh, manuscript that I originally submitted to my editor, Judy, was over 400 pages long. Well, <laughs> And she was kind of like very gentle. I mean, I am obsessed with her. She just absolutely did the most with helping me like stay focused and, and get it to where it is. And she did so, so, so much. But I, yes, I submitted this manuscript and she was like, um, so we should like, you know, let's uh, figure out a way to like make this really, you know, useful for the reader. And I think that I found myself going on like a lot of digressions and tangents when I was very interested in this sort of idea. Like I love food writing and cookbooks that have like a, historical um, component or that are kind of texts that are like historical deep dives into things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a book called like Medieval Feasts. Like Elizabeth David is a great example of a writer who, you know, can ably write you know, recipes for gelato, but she will like contextualize it with like stories about travel or like Renaissance painting or like being in Italy. So, you know, this is something I think a lot about with, um, you know, like historical texts about like Chinese food history. And my dad is a um, Chinese film historian. And he's all he always was telling me, like, there's no like there's just not a lot of like academic published literature around like food traditions and food pathways in China. And like, obviously, there's so much there. So I think that if I had unlimited time and money and also to your point about like travel, I think some kind of book or text about uh, like Chinese dessert traditions and history of those traditions in that whole country would be like an incredible thing that I don't really feel like exists right now in English, you know? Yeah, I think that would be so cool and such a visually fun book to work on as well. Yeah. Well, Natasha, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you so much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.